Last fall, there was an article in the Atlantic magazine titled, Will the Church Stop Shaming People Who... <clears throat> Will the Church Start Shaming People Who Live in Sin? Will the Church Stop Shaming People Who Live in Sin? It was about a meeting of Roman Catholic clergy who had gathered together at the Vatican. And one of the speakers at this convocation said something along these lines. Using language like living in sin is not helpful because it doesn't draw people closer to Christ. And on the one hand, the speaker makes a good point, doesn't he? Because the first things that Christians should be known for is our love, our kindness, uh, our deeds of mercy and service. But at the same time, while it's probably not what you lead with, uh, at the same time, while you may have to spend many long conversations over a long period of time before a, a person is ready to hear this, they have to be convinced that you actually care about them. All these things are true. But at the same time, we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about sin. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually says that the message that Christians are tasked with, he says, here's the message that you're supposed to take to the world, and he puts it this way, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That that's the message we are to take to the world. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. I didn't know God and I had a problem. Well, there's this thing called sin. The book of Acts, we read, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from what? Well, there's this thing called sin. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him, excuse me, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Will not perish? Why should I perish? Well, there's this there's this thing called sin. See, the reason that, that you need Jesus, the reason that I need Jesus, is because of our sin. And while it's certainly not the job of the church to, to grab a big repent sign and run around beating people over the head with that, a right understanding of sin and a right understanding of Jesus' love for sinners should cause me to see my need for Jesus and to draw close to Jesus, not push away from him. And so we're going to use this text from Samuel this morning basically to see two things, to see the reality of sin, and then ask the question, is there any hope for sinners? And, and, and that's it. The reality of sin, and is there any hope for sinners in this? So 2 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. This is God's word. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, 
Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? to go up to my altar to burn incense to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Would you pray with me? Father, help us uh, as we approach your scriptures uh, today. Uh, Everything in your word is not always equally clear, but I pray that you would make uh, the parts that are vital for us to understand clear to us this morning. 
uh, so that we might see Jesus in our need of him. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A year or two back, uh, we studied, we went through a series in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges chronologically comes just prior to the book of Samuel. And when we studied the book of Judges, we called that series, we called Judges the breaking bad of the Bible because of how horrific the book of Judges is and how everything in that book seems to spiral out of control. Uh, Some of you who have watched Breaking Bad or have tried to watch it uh, have gotten hung up on the first two episodes. And I hear this is a common refrain. You get hung up on the first two episodes because there's something that happens in the first two episodes that's so horrific and gory and it involves a bathtub and acid and dead bodies and eating through the floors. And, and Anyway, it's very gruesome and people get hung up on those first two episodes and say, I, I don't really think I want to watch any more of this. And that, that's very common. In the book of Judges, those episodes that are so horrific that leave you going, I, I don't know about this book, they don't happen at the very beginning of the book. They happen in the last three chapters of the book of Judges. Because in the last three chapters of the book of Judges, among other things, uh, a man's concubine, which is kind of like a a slave who is also a wife, is gang raped, and then she's killed, and then when the man discovers her in the morning, he cuts her body into 12 pieces, and he mails those to the 12 tribes of Israel to say, hey, we need to get revenge on the people who have done this. And then at the very end of the book of Judges, it ends by saying this, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And that's it. That's the end of the book. And if I had recommended to you, if I had said to you, hey, you should go watch Judges on Netflix, and you watched it to the end, you would have gotten to the end and say, Justin, why in the world did you tell me to watch that? There are no redeeming qualities. It's incredibly gory. And then at the end, there's like, there's nothing good happens. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and everybody's rejected God. I, I feel like I've just wasted my life watching this. But then season two rolls around. And season two is 1 Samuel, which we started on last week. And after the end of the book of Judges, Samuel starts on this incredibly high note. Because in Samuel, you have a barren woman who pleads with the Lord for a son. And the Lord hears her request and gives her a son who is the boy Samuel. But then chapter 2 hits. And it feels like we're back in that death spiral of judges again. Because in chapter 2 we see not only is the whole nation of Israel corrupt, the church itself within Israel is corrupt. Uh, We learn of a a, a priest and his two sons who are also priests, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we learn, as as we read this morning, that Hophni and Phinehas were worthless men. And the, the literal translation there is they were sons of wickedness. So this corruption is spread to the church. What is it that, that Hophni and Phinehas have done that is, that is so bad here? What were they doing that's so bad? Well, when the people of Israel, they brought many types of offerings. Well, one of the types of offerings they brought was a peace offering. And the priests were entitled to a portion of that offering for themselves. And they would take the breast and one of the thighs for themselves. And the worshiping family would then take the rest of that 
offering after it had been boiled or whatever they did with it there, they would take the rest of that particular offering and they would eat it for themselves kind of to, to celebrate the conclusion of, of what had been done, the, the religious ceremony. Um, the best way to think about this is probably it's a, it's a post-sacrificial meal uh, and Hophni and Phineas are sending their servant up to grab some extra meat. All right. So think about like if we have a, a church potluck and I sent Jack and Will to grab all of your KFC from you, all right? We, we passed it out. And I'm like, I, I want more of your fried chicken, all right? That's a little, um, I don't know what, what the right word is. What happened here is much more serious because it's part of this ritual that is intended, everything that's going on, remember, is intended to point people to Jesus. And so they're, they're, they're messing with something that's very serious here as they're, they're, they're robbing from the people. But they're also robbing God, the text goes on to say, because uh, the fat portion was meant to be offered to God. It was meant to be burned in honor of God. But the priests were actually coming and they were taking that portion for themselves. And if the offer of the sacrifice said, hey, we're not really supposed to do that. That's supposed to be burned in honor of God. Then the priest would say, I'm going to knock you upside the head if you don't give me that, that fat portion. They were like, all right, man. And so... They compounded here what they were doing. And the whole thing sounds a little, I mean, let's be honest, it sounds a little bit bizarre and comical to us, kind of like a, a priest gone wild reality show or something. Uh, and you're just like, this, is, this seems so strange, but it was deadly serious because they were robbing the families of this food that was meant for them to eat as they celebrated the, the, the atonement for their sins. And they were robbing God by taking something that was meant to be sacrificed in honor of him. And so, verse 17, you see how serious this is. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Then the text goes on though to tell us there's even more in verse 22. says that these sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were actually having sex with the women who worked here at the worship center. And so th just the whole thing is just this awful scene. That's the world that Samuel was born into. That's the world that Samuel was born into. The nation is corrupt. The church is corrupt. And everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Sometimes we feel like we can relate to that, don't we? Uh, we live in a nation where cash is king, where for many years a person could be enslaved or mistreated simply for the color of their skin, where police officers are shot today simply for being police officers, where violence is common, uh, where we don't want to force religion on anybody else, so we force the religion of secularism on everybody where 40 to 50 million unborn children have been sacrificed and disposed of on the altar of convenience because having a child might make our lives more difficult. That's the nation that we live in. So we can relate to some degree to living in a place where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But we can relate to problems in the church too from prosperity gospel teachers who fleece their congregations while they live in luxury, to deacons stealing from the offering, to pastors having affairs, to pedophile priests. 
And so the church looks at the nation and says, man, you're messed up. This, this nation's going to hell in a handbasket. And the nation looks at the church and says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Religion is the real problem. And so we're left to ask, is the problem out there where people have no religion? Or is the problem in here where we supposedly force people to suppress natural desires that eventually are going to come out anyway? Where's the real problem? Where's the real problem? The Bible's answer is that the problem for those inside of the church and those outside of the church is actually in here. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. Jesus in Matthew 15 says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, these things that come out of our hearts. So sinful actions outside of the church, sinful actions inside of the church, sinful actions in my life, sinful actions in your life, they all flow out of our sinful heart. Uh, but in our continual quest to, to craft identities for ourselves as intelligent people, successful people, put together people, good people, any talk about sin is threatening to that identity I'm creating for myself. I, I, don't, I don't want to hear about that. That's not who I'm trying to be. And, and even if I'm willing to confess sin generally, as we did together in the, in the confession earlier, I have a hard time hearing about my specific sins. Uh, Dan Doriani in the book that our men's group is reading together said, No one seems to be guilty of anything anymore. People have guilt feelings, but no guilt. Everyone is a victim, but no one is a victimizer. Rarely does anyone do anything that they admit to be wrong. And even if we admit to doing something wrong, then it's kind of immediately followed by, well, that's just an aberration. That's not who I really am. If you really knew me, that's not really consistent with, with my character. Uh, in the... the the television series Bloodline, there's a subtitle to that title and it says, we're not bad people, but we did a bad thing. We're not bad people, but we did a bad thing. And then one of the characters in the, in the show tries to show you why it is they did what they did and ask you, wouldn't you have done the same thing if you had been in our shoes? Would you have done anything differently? The scriptures say, the reason we do bad things is because it's consistent with who we are. It's consistent with our sinful hearts. Um, the movie several years ago, Bruce Almighty, uh, Jim Carrey meets God, who's played by Morgan Freeman. Uh, and Morgan Freeman, God, points Jim Carrey to a, to a small filing cabinet. And he says, there's a file in there with everything that you've ever done in your life. And in the movie, it's this very tiny filing cabinet, and Jim Carrey kind of towers over it. It's like, well, there's not, not that much in it. 
And then he pulls it open. And it, like if he was standing, if it was against this window, he pulls it open. And the file cabinet shoots all the way to the back of the room with him like riding on it. And it's just stacked with a list of everything that he's ever done in his life. All of his sinful thoughts, all of his sinful words, all of his sinful deeds. It's all there. Because it's a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection of his heart. The Bible says that you and I have this sin problem that we take with us that's deep, that's intensive, and that we take with us wherever we go. Um, I, I read a, um, a column online this week. It was about a student who had moved to Bavaria from Virginia. And listen to what they said about why they moved and what, what they were hoping to find there and what they actually found there. I believe there was a future for me in Bavaria, something that could make me happier. When I arrived, my perspective shifted. I didn't expect to become immediately free from sin or to have my dark thoughts suddenly erased. I wanted to be justified. My anxiety-induced loneliness and discomfort didn't make sense in Charlottesville, where I have wonderful friends all around me and attended an esteemed university. Inner turmoil points to something deeply wrong within, something I want to run away, with, run away from as fast as possible. In Bavaria, though, my loneliness and discomfort could suddenly be normal. In other words, they're saying, like, I have this great life, but I feel all this anxiety and tension and, and, and discomfort, and that doesn't make sense here. And, but, but when I move to Bavaria, it'll be normal to feel that way, so I can be okay about that part of my life, and I won't have to be anxious about it any longer. They would, in Bavaria, though, my loneliness and discomfort could suddenly be normal. They would finally make sense. There's nobody here, and it really is lonely. Working in the mill is hard work, and it turns out I'm not actually all that good at bagging flour. It's okay to be dissatisfied with my work. It's normal. I'm normal. My minimal knowledge of the German language fails miserably when attempting to communicate with people speaking the Bavarian dialect. It's uncomfortable and lonely, but perfectly normal. The justification would allow me to dodge my distracting anxieties, and I could start over with less sin and more time with Jesus. While the time here has been incredible, my hopes have overwhelmingly failed to materialize. And, and here's kind of the key part I want you to get. The truth is, I managed to find new ways to be selfish. New outlets to feed my lust. New people to lie to. New strategies to generally avoid God. My whole tough situation justifies dark feelings. Turned out to be completely ridiculous as well. My life here is actually pretty awesome. In the end, I may have successfully changed my lifestyle, but it didn't solve any problems. I am at heart a sinner despite my best efforts to deny that fact. I am at heart a sinner, despite my best efforts to deny that fact. Don't you feel that sometimes? Like maybe you don't want to like move across the world, but I, if I can just make a few tweaks to my life, and a, and a little bit of change to my schedule, or to my job, or to who I hang out with. And then you do all that and you find out all over again I am at heart a sinner despite my best efforts to deny that fact. I am at heart a sinner despite my best efforts to deny that fact. 
And that fact of my sin that I always have with me has consequences. All kinds of consequences. And Eli, for everything that he does wrong in this, at least he sees this in his sons and he, and he tries to call them out on it. Uh, look in verse 23. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it is the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli recognizes the seriousness of the sin that his sons are committing. And verse 25 is interesting because it seems like what Eli is saying here is, look guys, if there's a wrong between two men, one has wronged the other, then God or a judge he appoints, he can step in and mediate between those two parties. But if the two parties in this dispute are you and God, then I don't know who's going to mediate for you. Because you're always going to be in the wrong and God is always going to be in the right. So if, if, if there's trouble with you and God, who can intercede for you? If you sin against the Lord, who can intercede for you? He's all, God's always going to be in the right and you're always going to be in the wrong. Uh, David in Psalm 51, after he had committed adultery and had a man murder, recognizes that not just the sins that Eli, Hophni, and Phineas had committed, but that all sins are ultimately against God. Listen to what he says when he's confessing his sin. He says to God, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David says, God, your judgment against my sin is just. Yes, I acknowledge that my sin has consequences. My sin has consequences that are determined by you. Uh, in the, the very beginning of the movie True Grit, Maddie Ross is this 14-year-old young lady who's going off to avenge the death of her father at the hands of a man named uh, Tom Cheney. Her father had hired Tom Cheney to, to do some work he had paid him, and then Tom Cheney uh, took, took the money, and he got drunk, and he gambled it all away, and he lost all of the money he had just made, and he got the idea that he was being cheated, so he went to get his gun to come back and start killing people, and Maddie's dad tried to step in and intervene, and he, Tom Cheney killed her father and robbed him and fled, and nobody, nobody went after him. And Maddie says in the opening scene of the movie, no doubt Cheney fancied himself scot-free, but he was wrong. You must pay for everything in this world one way and another. And isn't that a picture of us fleeing from the scene of the crime like Adam and Eve and then trying to find a way to cover ourselves thinking that we're going to get off scot-free? But in the words of Maddie Ross, you pay for everything in this world, one way and another. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the wages of sin is death. 
And so Eli's question still kind of hangs over us there. If we've sinned against God, and we've all sinned against God, who can intercede for us? Who can intercede for us? Is there any hope for us? Is there, there, is there any hope for us here in episode 2 of Samuel? A couple of television shows I've enjoyed recently use flash-forwards to hint at what's coming, to kind of give you a taste of what's coming down the road. And I think that's what is happening here in 2 Samuel. Because throughout this account, throughout all of this darkness that's happening, we have these flash-forwards. And let me read some of them to you. Look in verse 11. And the boy was ministering, this is Samuel, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Uh, Verse 21, Indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then chapter 3, which was not printed, but verse 1 says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord before under Eli. Um, Now, anytime I've read the book of Samuel, I always picture Samuel, especially when he gets older, as as like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like that's just, that's my mental image when I think of Samuel in the Bible, is Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, so picture chapter 2 as a chapter where the dark side has just taken over everything. It's corrupted everything. All right? and, and Darth Vader is, is winning the day. And then like, everything's going bad, 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 bad. And then you have this flash forward. And there's young Obi-Wan. There's young Samuel ministering before the Lord. And then bad, 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 bad. And there's young Samuel again ministering before the Lord growing in favor of God and man. And and there's this hope that we're flashing forward to. There's a young Jedi in training in Samuel. And so we see in this that, that God is at work, even in the darkest hour, raising up Samuel to be his prophet. Someone who's going to speak the word of God in the midst of the darkness to his people. And we're going to talk more about that next week in chapter 3. Because there's another flash forward in this that I want us to to think about today. Look in verse 35 again. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. Now I want you to, to picture this one as, as two flash forwards, this one verse is two, two flash forwards. There's a short term flash forward to a guy named Zadok, who, would, who would, God would raise up to be a, a, a good and decent priest in the house of Israel. And, and this happens in the very near future. But then there's a flash forward that's a little more grainy, it's a little harder to see, but it's flashing forward to many years down the road to another priest, a better priest. A priest who really will be faithful and serve God faithfully. It's a priest we read about in our confession of faith this morning. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest 
in His once offering up Himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews talks about this priestly work of Christ and referring to Jesus says, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so Eli's question is answered in Jesus Christ. Is there someone, if someone sins against the Lord, as we all have, who will intercede for him? Paul answers this in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. He says, Eli, he says to us, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who will intercede for us before the Father. Eli's afraid there's no one. And the New Testament says there is Jesus Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. And so there's hope in the midst of the darkness of this story. And there's hope in the midst of the darkness of your story. And there's hope in the midst of the darkness of my story. That there is one who will be a go-between between me and God. And offer himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice on my behalf. Now, we're going to deal with this more next week, but the, the, you have to ask the question here, well, what about Eli's sons? Because at this point, as you can tell plainly from the text, there's no hope for them. And I think the reason for that is that these guys have rejected the hope that had been handed to them. They have, they have rejected these offerings and sacrifices were intended to be pointing them and us, or them and the Old Testament worshipers to Jesus Christ. And they were handling these offerings and sacrifices day after day after day. And they said, you know what? We prefer food and drink and sex better. And so it's like they had the gospel in their hands every day. And they said, we don't really have any use for this. And God finally gets to the point where he says, fine then. If you don't want the gospel... You won't have the gospel. And so there's this, there's a, there's like all this hope in this passage, but there's a warning to us too as well. When you hear the gospel held out before you, today is the day to believe. Today is the day to believe. Don't continue to reject what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Harper Lee had a new book this year. Some of you have heard about uh, many people are not happy about. It's the sequel uh, to To Kill a Mockingbird, and it's called Go Set a Watchman. And some people think it's okay, some people think it's poorly written, some people are refusing to read it for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons people don't like this book is that Atticus Finch 
He was the hero of To Kill a Mockingbird because he risked his reputation uh, to defend a wrongly accused black man uh, in the South. And he risked his reputation to do this. And so you're like, Atticus is the hero. And then when you read Ghost Set a Watchman, you find out, whoa, he was just a racist after all. And everybody's mad about this. You're like, well, this was the one guy we could point to. And now you're saying that's not really who he was, that he was just as much a product of his times as everybody else. But Jeff Dean writes this. He says, Ghost Set a Watchman forces us to recognize that Atticus Finch was never the distinctly southern paragon of noble virtue we believed him to be. Rather, his character was filtered to us through the eyes of a narrator made unreliable by her youth, her innocence, and her subconscious need to believe that a world wherein evil could literally march down Main Street might still possess some touchstones of order and goodness. But that world doesn't exist outside of storybooks. In the real story of our world, all things are touched by sin. Jesus himself said to call only God good. So finding any good news in all this disappointment is surely not easy. Were it not for the gospel, the loss of our Atticus Finches would be cause only for cynicism and despair. Whom can we trust if not our heroes? How do we live in a world in which even our mythological gods philander and deceive? The story of the gospel is the story of goodness coming to us. It is a story of where life can be found even after death. Atticus Finch will let you down. The church will let you down. Justin will let you down. You will let you down. But this passage is pointing us to a priest who will never let you down. A priest that you can bring all of your sin to. All of it. And, and, and you can slide it over to him. You can give it to him. And he takes it on himself. And he deals with it utterly and completely at the cross. Uh, Hebrews 7.25 he, he is able to save to the uttermost he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's the priest you need. That's the priest that I need. I didn't finish earlier the line that Maddie spoke at the beginning of the movie True Grit. She said, you must pay for everything in this world one way or another. But that's not all she said. She said, you must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. There is nothing free except the grace of God. Jesus Christ has offered to you today as the priest who offered up himself as the sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. So that your sin might be forgiven. And he's offered to you today, free of charge. Nothing is free except the grace of God. Will you receive him? Will you receive him? Will you be reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us.
Father, I pray that you would work through what has been uh, proclaimed today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and change our hearts so that we believe that in the midst of the darkness there is good news and the cross of Jesus Christ for us. Father, I pray that we would be those not who reject this gospel, but those who receive it freely and gladly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.